0: again. Uh, my name is, is George, Again, um, So for some time, um, we've been in the Gospel of John, preaching through the book expositionally, and today marks our last sermon in John for a while. Uh, during the summer, we're going to be tackling the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, uh, Song of Solomon. Uh, the next week, we're going to look at a passage um, from the Book of Kings that's going to prepare us for that. But for today... Once again, we're going to open up the Gospel of John one last time to finish off Jesus' confrontation with the Jews in John 10, verses 31 through 42. So let's go ahead and read. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. But everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship, um, to look into your word, and see you, God, be revealed um, in the preaching of your word. Help us to know you better. Help us to proclaim you better as we see it. In Jesus' name, amen. So is your reading of scripture leading you to see Jesus? Are you more prepared to recognize him in its pages? Are you more prepared to recognize him in the people, in the body, and the people around you? That's really going to be the question today. Jesus is confronting biblically literate but spiritually insensitive, in fact, spiritually dead leaders. They're deaf to his words. They're blind to the things he does. The taste of his ministry is bitter on their lips. The smell of his community, offensive. Sinners tax collectors, ugh. They need Jesus to lay hands on their hearts and restore life. And so we look at the passage today. It all starts with Jesus' final words from last week's passage. I and the Father are one. Now, if this isn't the first time Jesus has pointed to his unique relationship with the Father, when asked to speak plainly, though, Whether he is the Christ or not, his response is, I and the Father are one. That's a pretty resounding yes. Jesus' heart and mission are wrapped up in the Father's heart and mission, unlike any other leader, king, shepherd, priest, or teacher that has come before. So many uh, critical scholars would have us doubt whether Jesus claimed to be God. They would instead like uh, to present Jesus' involvement in the divine as Uh, fanciful intrusions uh, by pagan religion, Um, wishful hopes by depressed disciples, or even intentional corruption of Jesus' own religious ideals by those seeking money and power. Jesus can be a teacher of an enlightened morality uh, for his day and age, but, but not God. He didn't think that. Jesus could be accepted as a prophet in the sense of a man who goes up against those in power, um, seeks reform and social justice, uh, maybe even as a man with real intentions to reform Jewish religion, but not God. That makes no sense. But John's gospel doesn't tolerate us reading him that way. Our Our passage says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They didn't take his words as just something passing. They took them seriously. They, They heard his words. They heard that Jesus was claiming something unique about his relationship to the Father. It wasn't unclear. But that doesn't mean that they knew Jesus. They were getting a whole bunch wrong as they heard these words. They knew enough to know that Jesus was a threat to them, though. Jesus doesn't break down in fear. He doesn't cower. He doesn't try to run, to escape, he simply poses a question. He looks them dead in the eyes and rather than fearful self-defense, asks them for an explanation. You guys, you're well equipped to interpret the law. Everything I've done is out in the open. What exactly is it that you don't like? What exactly is it I've done that you're taking exception to? I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So briefly, let's just do a recap. This is our last time in John for a while. Let's do a recap of some of these mighty, noble, beautiful deeds of Jesus. In John 2, we saw Jesus turn water into wine. And not just any wine, but but good wine. Like something somebody would call the best wine. Now, that was done somewhat in private, so maybe we'll move on from there. He cleansed the temple. That didn't make people very happy, but it was nevertheless a good work. In chapter 4, he healed the official's son from a distance. He showed that he had authority over time and space. He healed the man at the pool, um, telling him to pick up his bed and walk. And, and what does he say when he does that? He says, my father is working until now, and I and working, And then we, of course, have to remember Jesus feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. And then soon after, walking on water to the other side. And most recently in chapter 9, we saw Jesus healing a man born blind. He was smears mud and spit on his eyes and tells him to wash. Pretty interesting stuff, not quite even to the level of some of the Old Testament prophets, but, but still, stuff that just amazed the crowds. Now, some of these works have been signs to help the disciples believe, like the uh, turning water into wine. Others have demonstrated Jesus' authority or compassion or wisdom. But a recurring theme he again mentions here is that his many good works are from the Father. They're not at his initiative. He doesn't do anything on his own. He's not the initiator. He hears and sees the Father's work. He sees what the Father does, and he does the same thing. Jesus, we see in John, is not setting himself up in opposition to God. He's not a separate authority, a rival deity. He's not making much of himself at all, but the Father is making much of him. The Father is the one who seeks the Son's glory, and that's what the Jewish leaders aren't seeing. Jesus' question about his good deeds isn't a one-off. It's not a fluke. It isn't just a well-timed rebuff. He has reinforced again and again that his actions are not just random acts of kindness. He has a purpose. He has a mission. He has somewhere he's going to. Um, his, His works, his miracles point to something, or rather someone, himself. In John 5, he said it this way, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. They highlight a rescue mission executed by all the persons of the Trinity, all hands on deck. His healings, his signs, his wonders are a reminder of God's words to to Moses. Moses, hidden in the rock, says uh, God says to him, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Jesus' works tells, Jesus' works tell of the father's heart for the lost. They're a, they're a library of love letters. They illustrate the obedience of the son to the father. They don't illustrate the son setting himself up as a new king. They illustrate obedience to the father, an obedience that's notably marked for suffering. We read in in Hebrews, though we see it in John already, that he is going to suffer as the obedient son. Jesus' work marks him out as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, our perfect mediator. Jesus doesn't do good deeds to earn a reputation or to get a good name. He isn't doing it to prove anything. He does the work that he sees the Father doing, and instead of winning people's affection, it often wins their disapproval, their rejection. And there's a message here for us fleeting, but just because people are unhappy with us reject us, slander us, it doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. It certainly didn't for Jesus. We no, look no further than him to see it played out. Just because people praise us doesn't mean we're godly either. doesn't mean we have read and taught scripture correct, rightly. doesn't mean we have applied the word to our lives successfully. Jesus perfectly executed the will of the Father, and those who should have been in a position to recognize him didn't. But the real question John asks is do we see? Do we really see Jesus? Do we know him? Do we really know him? Do we recognize him when we see him? Because they didn't. They had the scripture but they didn't recognize him. So it's a question of application. Um, Have we settled for a fake, a knockoff that tells us what we want to hear or do we really hear from Jesus? But let's move on to the response to Jesus' question. Um, we see in John ten thirty three. it says, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. So while his f- actions have frustrated them, his words enraged them. Enough to pick up stones with intent to kill. Enough to sidestep normal legal procedure. Enough to potentially threaten the peace of the city. And if you don't recall, I mean, this is under Roman control. They are in a tenuous state. Anything they do that brings disunity, brings foments any sort of violence, could be treated as a riot. And Rome could come and bear down on the whole people. They say, no, it's it's worth it to punish Jesus. It isn't the first time that they've questioned his motives and his words, but it is the first time in John that they've been bold enough to call it blasphemy. It's not something to accuse of lightly. Um, if we looked at Leviticus 24, 16, we'd see that it calls for the whole congregation, all the people to gather together in stoning them. It's not just the religious leaders. It's not just a small crowd. It's the whole people saying this must be rooted out Of our community. He says, you being a man, make yourself God. That's the accusation. How could you, a mere man, be of like kind with the Father? There's a barrier between divine nature and human nature. In his critiques of their shepherding, he seems to think that he's on God's side, against them. But he's not making himself anything, he just truly is. Or as one commentator writes, in reality, he being God has become man. Not he being man becomes God, or is making himself God, but he being God became man. They've heard his words, they have discerned the meeting, but they have not responded to them correctly. They haven't asked the million dollar question, are they true? And Jesus' next words are beautiful. Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law, uh, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Just because I said, I am the Son of God? The Jews cried blasphemy. Jesus quotes, from an obscure psalm to suggest that they need to do better than make foolish accusations. They say he's making himself out to be God. Jesus responds that God himself has called lesser creations God, gods. There are a number of things to unpack here, and the best place to start is Psalm 82. And so I'm going to read that. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken." I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, whoever these are who God calls gods, and there's a lot of debate over whether these are angelic beings, what kind of council it is, are these human judges, human kings. But whoever they are the clear thing is they're unjust judges. What God call, when God calls them gods in verse 6 of the psalm, there's a, there's a mocking tone. Yeah, you're gods, sure, but I'm still God alone. I'm still the most high. So Jesus isn't trying to get off on a technicality here. He isn't going, using this as like a proof text to say, well, gods was applied to these other beings, so it can be applied to me as well. That's not his point. His point isn't one of, well, well, the, 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 the officer didn't spell my name correctly, so it can't be me. Instead, this is an argument from lesser to greater. If God can refer to unjust judges, the lesser, as gods, then surely Jesus, the greater, set apart and sent by the Father himself, has every right to be called Son of God. They merely received the words of God, but I was set apart from creation for this task. I speak the words of the Father. I do the works of the Father. I reveal the Father. I and the Father are one, he says. It won't be enough to suggest blasphemy for stating a unique relationship with the Father, because if Jesus' words are true, it's no blasphemy to speak them. But Jesus shows us another thing that we should not jump over too quickly, and it's his own view of Scripture, his own use of Scripture. First, Jesus says, is it not written in your law? Now, he isn't suggesting that he doesn't agree with the law. He's not putting himself in opposition to the law, or that he doesn't hold it authoritative. Quite the contrary, he is reminding them that they consider Scripture authoritative too that they hold it as powerful and instructive. No one's questioning the authority of Scripture here. Jesus is questioning, instead, their ability to reply and respond to Scripture and their habit of misusing it. Often, Scripture is broken into three sections. We'll see the law and the writings and the history when we talk of the Old Testament. Um, Law would often only refer to the Pentateuch. Uh, the first five books of Moses, the, the actual law. But here Jesus quotes from the Psalms, and he refers to it as law. So is Jesus misinformed? Did he have a memory lapse? Well, no. Jesus knows their preoccupation with the law. Their accusations, however faulty and misdirected, stem from their reading of the law itself. Specifically, we already mentioned it, Leviticus 24:10 through 16. Um, Law, in this case, is just shorthand for all of Scripture. The same Scripture that they think is authoritative, he shares with them. So it it flows out of God's covenant with Israel at Sinai. Um, They should read it and they should find Jesus, but they don't or they won't. Second, he refers to Scripture saying that it cannot be broken or nullified. He's saying that they can't toss this little psalm out when it becomes inconvenient. He suggests all scripture is authoritative. Sure, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, uh, Deuteronomy 6, the, the Shema, or Isaiah or Jeremiah, the, the, the biggies. But a little psalm with some unclear references? Maybe we don't pull that one out when our lives are on the line, Jesus. But Jesus says, nope, Psalm 82. It's a divine authority bears on this situation and deserves to be heard. And Jesus doesn't just use the general idea either. He's not just getting the thrust of the text. He doesn't rip an unwilling moral truth out of it. No, he, he takes them to task for not reflecting on specific words and specific phrases that he quotes verbatim at them. That's the kind of power scripture should have for us. Jesus is our model, he's our teacher, And we're the disciples, so we use him as the example of how we should be behaving, how we should act to Scripture. So, brothers, sisters, with all the encouragement I can offer, I want to say take Jesus' words to heart. Recall the way Jesus uses Scripture, the way he treasures it, the way he leans on it. Is it not written, he asks. Scripture cannot be broken, he reminds. Jesus calls us to be students of Scripture, students of a text that is authoritative and given to us for our instruction. He commands us to be formed by Scripture rather than to be its judge. That's what the Jewish leaders are doing here. They're judging Scripture rather than being judged by it. So read the Word. Know the Word. Uh, we offer one or two verses each week. Um, as scripture memory, commit to memorizing scripture, whether that or or some other scripture, but commit to, to putting God's word into your heart, to knowing it in, through, throughout. Read books to better understand it. Listen to podcasts, ask questions. People learn differently, but do whatever it takes to take God's word from out there and put it in here. Elders are standing by to guide you to Deeper knowledge of God's word, we don't know everything. If we don't know something, we'll dig into it with you. The whole body of Christ is here to build one another up. And that isn't just fanciful language meant to, you know, make it feel supportive. No, it it crucially involves everyone in helping one another to know the word better. To know Christ better, to know the Father better. Jesus' point is that hearing and reading are not enough. The Jewish leaders can hear and read. They're not getting it. What is crucial is action, a response, a practical response to God's word. And so let's look at a couple examples. Um, We read in Ephesians, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It won't do for us to marvel um, at this beauty and challenge uh, of Christian living and just sit on it. It's gonna require us to look at our priorities and our commitments, uh, what motivates and what distracts us, what keeps us from real unity. Um, What has our attention and affection? Is it Christ? Is it security? Is it happiness? Are we comfortable in secret sin? Do we seek out those who will confront us and truly love us? Do we physically move to increase our ability to love one another? It's a practical way of reading that. Do we commit to sending notes of praise or encouragement? Or do we need to leave our gift at the altar and seek out a wronged friend, apologize, demonstrate humility, and acknowledge how our sin has hurt them? So it's a question of do we read and appreciate, or do we read and do, actively do something. We read in Colossians, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Do we just feel guilty that we don't pray enough? Is that our response to it? I'm I'm such a sinner, I just cannot pray well enough and leave it at that? Or do we ponder God's goodness toward us and use that as a launching pad to pray better? Do we spend time reminding ourselves of God's all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present glories? Do we thank him for his work in us and those around us? Do we pray for the gospel to go out and pray for workers? Do we look for things to actually pray about when our mind runs a little distracted? Do we confess sin, or is that something just to kind of keep hidden and not bring to God? Are are, are prayers a mark of a living relationship or just a cold one? We consider these things as we hit this passage. What practical steps will you make? uh, Will make spiritual disciplines like prayer sustainable in your life? Should you make journaling a priority or set an alarm on your phone to to ring at 1 p.m. every day so that you know, eh, it's time I'm going to put some consistent time to prayer here? All I'm saying is from this passage, we shouldn't just get, man... I didn't pray today. We should get, maybe I should commit to praying for that friend. Something practical, something that we can take from it. We read in 1 Timothy, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Do we just read right past this verse? It doesn't apply to me. We don't deal with that anymore. Aren't aren't I so thankful I don't have to deal with that? Or do we stop and considering how we treat our fellow workers? How we speak to our bosses when they're not around, about our bosses when they're not around? Do we consider how our diligence speaks of the Spirit's work in our lives? Do we suffer from procrastination or take a peculiar pride in it? What actions are we going to take to be faithful workers in the setting that God has ordained for us? So we go from reading to making it active. We go from hearing about Jesus to seeing Jesus actually in the scripture speaking to us. So far we've recalled Jesus' works and his words. Last on the list is his mission. We already read, the father sent Jesus purposefully and the son went willingly with a goal in mind. So let's take up the text in verse 37. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. This is not to say Jesus is not suggesting that you can believe Jesus' works and not believe his words. That would be a fairly rough way to read this passage. The point is that if the words at first are not convincing, then viewing his works in light of Scripture's full counsel will lead to believing his words. Jesus' mission is to reveal his own glory and the glory of the Father. And so John sums up Jesus' mission in two words. Um, Actually, one word, but in two different tenses. He says that you might know and that you might understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus' works are meant to guide us to see who he is. We're to know once and fully. We're to just know that this is Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord. But we're also meant to understand, to progressively know this same Jesus. So we're talking really about that new birth we experience, and then moving on from that to actually living in holy, living, following him. We're to invite them into the, he's inviting them into the life of God, to the river that we saw in John 7, flowing from his heart. He's inviting them into the kingdom as sons of God Most High, and hopefully this time, just ones. He's going to give them an inheritance to set them apart for good works, even greater works than those he did, says Jesus in chapter 14. This whole passage began with Jesus' statement that he and the Father are one. The Father and the Son share a communion, a conversation, a a relationship that is intimate and unbreakable, and in a way we cannot really understand very well. He invites us into that same relationship. And that's what he means by, I and the Father are one. We have this tight connection. He invites us into that same family sphere, just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one now, he invites us to be part of that, part of that family, part of that communion. But now Jesus gives a slightly different reason, or maybe a how. He says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. It's not a boast, it's an invitation. In the same way that we can experience that community, we get to experience Christ in us, the Spirit in us, empowering holy living, empowering exactly the kind of living that Jesus demonstrated in this passage. In 2 Peter, we read that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We will experience the Spirit of God dwelling in us, convicting us of sin. But what a great motivation to virtue, to knowledge, to faith, to self-control, to steadfastness, and ultimately godliness. It'll be a while before we get to John 14, but... We really should do a side note here. John 14 contains a mirror of this passage. John 14 is addressed to the disciples. The same words. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Believe my works. To Jesus' flock, his, his sheep, with the crucifixion rapidly approaching, they're words of comfort. They're words of celebration. They're words that we can trust Jesus. They're promises that, we can depend on when suffering comes. But here, the revelation that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus is met by a renewed um, attempt to arrest him. It's kind of a weaker thing. They were going to stone him before. He's put that off with his words. But they still intend to arrest him, to see him judged. Jesus takes it, all in stride, because he knows that as he reveals himself, he will also separate his hearers. Some are going to follow, some are going to reject. None of this is catching Jesus unaware. He knew going into it that he will reveal and that he will separate. John 10 reads this way Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went again. away away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. These few verses are both a comfort and a painful sigh, I'm sure, to Jesus. Jesus' time has not come, so the Jews of Jerusalem are powerless to take him. Jesus crosses the Jordan and finds masses who are ready to trust him and believe his words and his works on the witness of John, who's long dead. I can only imagine Jesus' thoughts on it. Why won't they listen? Why will Jerusalem not come to me and receive salvation, receive my mercy? The inhabitants of Jerusalem had failed to address the truthiness of Jesus' words. He didn't look like what they were expecting. Their reading of scripture didn't prepare them for Christ. They hadn't been prepared for God fleshed out. God coming in authority and power. They wanted another king like themselves. A priest who would confirm what they already thought. They had no map from their reading to the glories of Christ. You might say their theology was deficient. And normally we think, well, theology, it's just esoteric. It's not really valuable for practical living. But he says, no, it has real-world, eternal implications. Here across the Jordan, the people can see the truth of John, the Baptist's words. Sin must be dealt with at the cross. That's not done yet. Some things remain future. But Jesus has lived up to their expectations. And so as we come to Scripture Has Jesus lived up to ours? Do we see Jesus rightly? So what should you take away from this text today? The answer is as simple as it is profound. The application is actually just to believe Jesus. That's what he's calling us to do. It's not to go run off and do something big, to do something great. It's to believe Jesus, to believe that he and the Father are one, to know and understand that he is in the Father, and the Father is in him, to believe the works and the words. Um, I recently finished devotional reading in um, the Old Testament, and I started Genesis again. Um, So I'm reading it straight through. And it's pretty easy to read it and simply say, creation, check. Noah's Ark, check. I've read those before. And just move on. But we've got to engage the text more than that. We have to come to it and say, what is Jesus? Where is he coming from this text? How are we seeing our sin and our need of a savior in this text? Some passages are going to speak more clearly than others. But every text of scripture, every part of scripture speaks to Jesus, speaks to our need for him, speaks to us us of God's provision for salvation. And so even as we read through Genesis, even as we read through Song of Solomon, we look to Christ, crucified, glorious, raised, for us to be united with God again. From cover to cover, God's word points to Jesus. It does it in a myriad of ways, but John wants us to see that his glory wasn't a new thing at the cross. Jesus was glorious from the start. He was in the Father from the start, just as the Father was in him from the start. The cross is linked to Jesus' holy life, his obedience to the Father. And John 10 asks us, do we know him? Would we recognize him? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take the words of Scripture Help us to know you. Help us to see you. Father, may we know the glory of Christ. His life lived in in perfect holiness. No sin to stain it. His suffering for us. God, his endurance of the cross, his condescension to experience suffering, hunger, thirst, rejection and slander by men. God, may we know Christ better. May we have our hearts changed, replaced even God, that we might follow him, that we might follow you and know your kingdom already present and coming still. Father, we thank you for this time. We, we ask you to, do more with it than we could possibly imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.